1: Sports Illustrated article from 1993, and yes, I graduated from high school in 93, good year. You're a baby. I am a baby, you just want to cuddle me and rock me, that's awkward. Anywho, let's get back on track, shall we? <laughs> the Sports Illustrated article from 1993 tells the story of how uh, NCAA Division II track and field championship that year went, and I want to read to you a portion of that article. There were 128 runners in the field for the cross-country race at that 1993 NCAA Division II Track and Field Championship. As they set out on the 6.2-mile run, they were following a course that had been marked for them by the race officials. Toward the end of the course, one of the runners in the middle of the group realized that something was wrong. Mike DeCalvo of Western State College in Colorado saw that the main pack had actually missed the turn. He says, I was waving for them to follow me and yelling, this is the right way, he told an interviewer for the race. Del Cabo was right, but only four other runners ended up following him on the right course. The rest continued on the shortcut, which allowed them to run a shorter distance and finish the race sooner. In a widely criticized decision that year, race officials allowed the abbreviated route to stand as the official course, and DeCalvo actually finished 123rd. The world does not always reward staying on track, literally or figuratively. But the path we follow is important to God. Would you agree with that? One day, those of us who have already trusted Christ for salvation will appear before the Lord for an evaluation of our faith and our service. And though we will not get into heaven based on works, but through our faith in Jesus Christ and our full surrender to him, we will have to stand and account for what we believed in and how we lived. Our entrance into heaven is sure, and that's, a, that's settled when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior of our life. But rewards, or the loss of them for how we spent our lives, are not so sure. When we stand before the Lord, no shortcuts will be recognized. Read John chapter 10. You want to know what Jesus says about getting into the kingdom, or what he calls a sheepfold? He says you have to come through him. You cannot jump in over the wall. There is no other way except through him. He says the same thing again in John chapter 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Is there any other way to make it to heaven? Are there many ways to make it to hell? Okay. When we stand before the Lord, no shortcuts will be recognized and only those who have run the race by his standards and his handbook will be recognized and honored. Let me step away from my notes for a minute. I've really been struggling with this message. It's been planned for a while. But as I really dug in and started looking at the commentaries and the background studies, the word studies, the message took on a life of its own. And so, what I initially thought the message was going to be actually changed this week as I really began to put feet to, this, to, the, to the word. And uh, I realized that this is not going to be a fun message. It's not politically correct, it is actually completely countercultural. And so the words that I'm going to speak today, though they would have been recognized and honored, let's just say 40 years ago, 30 years ago, today would be completely anathema to our culture. And so what I'm going to preach to you is with a heavy heart. It's not something that I'm excited about, or I'm going to be shaking a bony finger at you in condemnation, or even at the world around us. But as Scripture presents itself and we honor the Scripture for what it means and the integrity thereof, it behooves us as ministers of the Word or as teachers of the Word or as students of the Word to look at the Word the way it was intended to be embraced. And today we look at Psalm 127. This is one of two Psalms actually attributed to Solomon David's son, also king of Israel, of the United Kingdom of Israel, before it's split into two kingdoms. As attributed to Solomon, it's very short, and it sounds very simple like his Proverbs do, if you read the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or the wisdom literature. And it reads like this. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted, Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries or watchmen, some of your scriptures may say, will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning to late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They, are rewar- they reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Brandon, what does all that mean? Well, I thought I had an idea. And like I said, it was a good idea and it wasn't far from the truth. But when you really dig in and you understand the context and the cultural significance of this passage, it's saying a whole heck of a lot more when you understand to whom its audience was and what its purpose was. Biblical scholar Albert Barnes writes, from the psalm itself, it would seem that it was composed mainly with reference to one who was entering into what we would call domestic life. And that it was intended to get before such one, excuse me, and it was intended to get before such a one the views which ought to guide him or the thoughts which ought to occur to him. In in the ancient Jewish culture, as in Orthodox Jewish homes today, domestic life centered on God was paramount. It was so vitally important as it should be for the Christian community and used to be for the Christian community. And I say used to be because the Christian community statistically measured against the culture of the United States of America doesn't look much different. The family structure is a divinely created system ordained by God as a means to a healthy, functioning society. This short psalm reflects that system and its source, God. Living out the mandates of God within the world is the means of blessedness and rest. You ever wonder why the world is chaotic and seemingly restless? Because the vast majority of the world does not find its rest or hope in God through Jesus Christ. When one has fully surrendered their life. And I mean, when I say surrendered your life to Christ, it means all your desires, all your hopes, all your dreams. That sounds selfish for God to expect that of us. But see, one of the things I know and I understand about Scripture and about God's Word is that when we are completely and utterly surrendered in every way, form, or fashion, in every facet of our life to an all-holy God through His Son, Jesus Christ who submitted himself to death on a cross for the sin of the world. When that happens, there is true rest. Rest cannot come from you trying to achieve it on your own standards and in your own ways. Peace cannot come in life by trying to map out your own course. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Many are the plans of men, but God directs his steps. Here's the key point this morning is this. God gives rest to his loved ones. Simple, succinct, and sweet. But I want to be able to back that up and enforce that with these points. So what's Solomon telling us in this passage today? First and foremost, the home built by God is worthwhile. The home built by God is worthwhile. I, I am not naive enough to think that there are a vast array of traditional families within an earshot of my voice today. There are many of you that are here that have suffered divorce, difficult circumstances, death of a loved one, betrayal in our relationships. Many of you are single families. I want you to hear the word of God in this message today, not as words of condemnation, but words of hope. And I want you to hear as we go through some of this tough stuff and we begin to unpack Psalm 127 and look at God's perfect ideal as contrasted with the world's perfect ideal that you'll see some stark differences and important variances that are required for entrance into the kingdom of God. The home built by God is worthwhile. Again, Proverbs nineteen twenty one. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Do you know, in my going on forty seven years of life, and my wife's twenty nine years of life, that that we have that sounds actually creepy. So uh, thirty nine. We'll say that's a little bit. Yeah, we'll go with that. So in our short lives, our half lives. We have lived in Kentucky, not together. We were born and raised there. We met at college in Florida. We pastored in Ohio, and now we're pastoring where? Here. In Western Pennsylvania. Woo. Woohoo! Terrible towel. Woo! <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you say wipe my mouth with a towel? Well, I don't have a towel to death. All right. Anywho, back, back on track. We've lived in four different states. And do you know one of the common themes of life that we've experienced? Is we have a lot of great plans and dreams of how we think things are going to go. And we lay out a map often, or we have. We're getting to the point now where we're like, I don't know. Let's just not do that anymore. Right? But we lay out a map. Of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, and what life's going to look like when the kids are this age, and when the kids are this age, and then. Do you know how well that plan has played out? <laughs> not great. Well, let me, let me retract that last statement. It's not that it's not great, it's just not we, what we had planned having a conversation with my oldest daughter through text, and she's at a crucial, critical stage of life. I'm trying not to embarrass you, but she's getting ready to turn 20 next month, and I have ones getting ready to turn 18-year-old next month. She'll be graduating high school. And they got plans and ideas, but sometimes it's easy to get stalled out. I don't know what to do with my life. What am I purposed for? What What is I created for? And one of the things we've tried to instill in our kids Is you cannot know your true identity or purpose unless it's rooted in Christ. You will be beating like a boxer at the wind, not accomplishing anything if you aren't fully surrendered to Christ and His purposes. Well, I don't know what God's purposes are for my life, and this is it sounds so simple, but it's true. Are you praying? Are you truly seeking the Lord? Are you seeking his special revelation of himself through Jesus Christ, the living word, but also the Bible, the written word? You see, we live in such a biblically illiterate time, and I'm not just talking about the culture around us. I'm talking about the church. The church is one of the most biblically illiterate communities that, this, that the United States has ever experienced at this time and in this, and, and in this generation, the most biblically illiterate. But most people want to be spoon-fed about, they're lucky to make it through a half an hour of a preacher's preaching, much less 45 minutes, which is typically what I preach. It's like, oh, can he just stop for a minute? Are you doing this on your own? Are you only waiting to hear one short passage of five verses, and that's enough to, Put a drop of gas in your tank for the week. The home built by God is worthwhile. The great 17th century theologian and author Matthew Henry, writing in proper English prose, declared, If God not be acknowledged, we have no reason to expect his blessings, and without his blessings, all is nothing. Did you catch that? If you do not acknowledge God, or if you only partially acknowledge God, or if you 99.9% acknowledge God, guess what? It's not how it works. And how do I acknowledge God? It's just not by, by my mouth. It's by how I live. If you are not acknowledging God by the way you live behind closed doors, it doesn't matter how you acknowledge God in the public eye. Living life, building a foundation, living that hope of of, of everlasting life has to be found rooted in Christ above all else. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and his righteousness. What do we seek first in our culture? Let's say in our churches. What do we seek first in our churches? To be coddled? To to have my favorite class or my favorite song sung? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what will happen? All of these things will be added to you. Well, what things? So it's, okay, I get it. I get it. So it's kind of like a tit for tat or a quid pro quo. If I do this, then he'll do this. No, 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 no. He, He doesn't work the way the world works. Okay? You have to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness because when you do that, it changes you. Do you catch what I'm saying? When you seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, so what is God's kingdom? It is where the Lord dwells and has full reign. Where does God dwell and have full reign? Well, you know it's in heaven. We read the, uh, <clears throat> how Jesus told his disciples to pray. And what did he say? One of the passages in there? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? As it is? How does that happen? Through God's citizens who are his children. Those who have come to fully surrender to Christ in all areas of their life. Are children of God. And they are ambassadors. They're known as ambassadors of that kingdom. What is an ambassador of God's kingdom? It is someone who is a representative of that kingdom here in this foreign land of this heavenly home we call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Are you living as a good ambassador? Or are you compromised? Are you living as an ambassador of God, as a citizen of that kingdom, living out what that kingdom's values and ideals are in the here and now as it is in heaven? See, when Jesus said to pray that, the reality was he was asking us to pray for the strength to be that here pointing to there. Are you living that out? Are you living out God's perfect ideal for your life in the here and now, pointing to the there and then. Because that's truly the world's only hope. And quite honestly, your only hope as well. The idea of living a blessed life and having a blessed home isn't far out of reach. The problem exists in one who searches in a myriad of places and things other than God. There are countless people who have pursued any number of things that they thought would ultimately fulfill them and bring them a sense of joy and much like the building of a physical house, they built a life centered on faulty foundations of success, wealth, fame, or any number of things that they thought would bring them hope and success and bring them this ultimate peace they've been desiring and looking for only to come up empty-handed and broken in the end. Some people don't realize that early on, they realize it later in life, and they look back, and this is one of the common themes, if I could have done it differently, If I could have done this differently or that, if I could have been a better father, spent more times with the kids, if I could have been a better husband instead of working my fingers to the bone to provide a living, maybe I should have spent more time building up that foundation at home as well. If I'd spent more time seeking God rather than these illicit things that I thought would actually give me a moment of relief from the pressures of the world. Whether it's pornography or any illicit substance or alcohol. See, those are escapes and they become idols. And those idols, when worshiped as gods, begin to take control of your life. Ever so subtly, through certain justifications, which lead you down a dark path, and that dark path has no end except destruction. Except the Lord builds a house the workers work in vain they build in vain this doesn't mean that we shouldn't work or pursue you know, a lot of people read this and think well then i just sit back and let god do it all no that's not what it's saying either what does it mean what it means is that when we must do these things with the purpose of following god's will for our lives so work is an integral part of the process. And it's not aimless work which we're called to. Did you know before the fall in Genesis three that Adam and Eve worked and tended the garden? Work has always been a part of God's good and perfect design. But yet, it was when the fall happened that the work became in vain and difficult and hard and by the sweat of your brow and by the blood of the thistles and thorns that you'd have to make a living. It wouldn't be as fruitful. But work that God creates is meant to be fruitful. And the only way to be fruitful once again is to be reconnected with a God and surrendered to him in all areas of life. How do we bear fruit? Through the Holy Spirit living in us. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In one who is redeemed and repented of his or her sins and is fully surrendered to the will of the Lord. The Holy Spirit will not dwell anywhere else. And you have a part in that because you have a choice as to whether or not you allow the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and to produce fruit through you and to manifest himself in you in a way that only he can to bring about something you could never even conceive of in your own will, strength, or power. And yet we have a church full of people across this nation and in many cases across the globe that is so weak and powerless because it's trying to do it in its own strength and its own power or it's compromised because it believes a lie of the enemy who says it's all about love and grace and not about truth. Unless the Lord builds the house, the work of the builders is wasted. Biblical scholar and author James Mays explains that work and family were the two constitutive dimensions of the ordinary life in Israel. Life was set in the social unit of the family and supported by work. Both involved this mysterious uncertainty. Work and family were human endeavors, but human action was not ultimately determinative in them. Work didn't always come to fruition. Marriage did not always produce children. The psalm is grounded in a fundamental trust in the providence of God as the decisive factor in all of human life. Again, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How many times do you read from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament and into the New where there were women who were barren, who were unable to have kids, and they chalked it up as, well, I guess this is my lot in life. Only to be blessed by God at the right time and in the right way to have a child that would help change the world for the better. The next point is, a city protected by God will stand. What is a city synonymous with when we look at this passage? So we're talking about the home or the house built by the Lord is blessed and it will stand, but unless the Lord builds it, the house is wasted. I, I talk with couples a lot when I'm doing premarital counseling. Unless Christ is the center and the foundation of your relationship, you don't have a fighting chance. And some people try it without that. And they may make it a good long while. But they're not as fulfilled and blessed as they would be with Christ as the center of their home. What about the city? Well, unless Christ builds the corporate structures, the governmental structures, guess what? Unless the Lord does that, guarding it with any other earthly thing will not protect it. See, God desires complete trust. What condition is the United States in right now? It's in great shape, Brandon. I love paying more for gas. And I'm not going to, listen, I'm not getting into politics. I'm not going to mention any politician's name. But let's, let's be honest. Are things better or worse? And not because of a political person. I think it's deeper than that. I think the root of the problem in the United States is deeper than whoever holds office at the White House. Do you understand? Because, I mean, God allows people to be put in place. Okay? But sometimes God allows people to be put in places of power and authority for judgment. We don't like to hear that. I mean, look all the way back in the Old Testament. Judah In Israel, the split kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel had become so depraved that God uses the Assyrian kingdom just to the northeast of them to rule over them, to take them over. See, God allowed that to happen, not because He's a mean, vindictive, and brutal God, but because He had contended so much with the northern kingdom, Israel to stop sacrificing your children on altars to idols, stop adultering yourself with other so-called gods and, and offering them sacrifice, stop doing that. And he did that for generations until he got to the point where he's like, fine, you obviously don't want me anymore, and because you don't want me, then I'll allow you to be handed over to those You do want the gods of the Assyrians, but you're going to suffer the consequences of what the Assyrians will bring. And he allowed the northern kingdom to be taken over. And then Judah, the southern kingdom, not too much longer after that, a few generations, they are just as bad, but they weren't as bad as Israel, so they they had a little bit more time to change things, but they didn't. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes in. And he wipes out the northern kingdom, sacks Jerusalem and the temple, and takes the remainder of the people of God and disperses them throughout the whole Babylonian empire, which was huge at the time. Well, that was the God of the Old Testament. Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, Jesus came, and we have grace. Yes. But he is also one who says, "Then I will give you over to a reprobate mind." What is that? This sounds so King Jamesy. Well, what that means is, after contending with us for so long, there's a point and a limit to God's patience. Where he says, "Fine. I'll turn you over to that which you seem to desire more than me. That's called judgment. God's withdrawal and protection. Unless the Lord protects the city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. Theologian and author Stephen Lennox reminds us that centuries ago on a plain in Mesopotamia, people sought to make a name for themselves by their accomplishments, specifically by building a city and a tower. See Genesis 11. You ever heard of the Tower of Babel, where all the different languages come from? Guess what they were trying to do? Let's make a name for ourselves. Look at how good we are. Woohoo! A nation who is good, devoid of God, will quickly become bad and depraved and will succumb to their own devices because of a lack of protection from God. Now, let's contrast the Tower of Babel with another event in the same chapter of Genesis chapter 11. Did you know that in Genesis 11, where we have the Tower of Babel, that one seems to outshine this next example the birth of Abraham to Terah. Both required human involvement. However, because the tower lacked God's blessing, it amounted to only confusion. But from Terah's son, Abraham, God produced the Jewish nation. And from that nation, he brought Jesus. And through Jesus, he revealed himself to the entire world. When God builds the house, its builders do not labor in vain. And when God protects the city, Guarding it with centuries will do no good. A quick look around the world today, and we can see the achievements of mankind. Some of the tallest buildings in the world that will put the Tower of Babel to shame. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the tallest building in the world. Check it out online. It's huge. Space travel. Robotic surgery, computer technology, digital capabilities, but anything that we could ever imagine today. Much of the scientific discovery today that is attributed to human capability as an involving species under the guidance of natural processes, whereas most of the greatest discoveries of science from the past were attributed to an all-sovereign God. But today it's attributed to natural selection, I don't know what you believe about any of that kind of stuff, but suffice it to say, if you look at the course of human history, especially in the past 2,000 years, the greatest discoveries of all time were attributed to the church who worshiped a God. They believed all sovereign and all holy. However, not unlike humanity during the time of the Tower of Babel, We've succumbed to the faulty assumption that our achievements, devoid of God, are due solely to the fact that we are great. Look at what we have achieved as the Americans, look at what others have achieved in the name of science and technology. And having driven God out of our pursuit of the sciences and out of our social institutions and out of our governmental structures and laws and out of our educational endeavors, we have ultimately created not a Tower of Babel but the Tower of Terror, built on a faulty foundation. Our cities, our municipalities, our nation are quickly fading into a place of unprotected status by God's standards. And though we may have the strongest military on the face of the earth and the most advanced military technology and capabilities, our ability to protect ourselves is nothing compared to the protection that God has given us over the course of these some 250 years. And what we have taken for granted is the fact that God, though not blessing everything we have done because we have been a very imperfect nation having worked in and through us, through godly men and women, have corrected those problems throughout the course of our existence as a nation. And now, we live in a day and age where the larger voice in society is saying, look at what we've done and what we've accomplished. And so now we need to eradicate every vestige of the past and I would quite say to our own demise yet again. With the destruction of the family, the confusion of gender, and the devaluing of the sanctity of life, we've taken for granted that a true, healthy, civil society is only as strong as the gods they worship. For it's truly these gods who will either protect them or destroy them in the long run. We've replaced our worship of God, Yahweh, with the worship of so-called gods of secular humanism and are now incurring the consequences of these actions. If we're not careful, we will see in our lifetime the withdrawal of God's protection of our nation. And those few sentries or watchmen who are ringing the warning bells of destruction on the horizon will not be able to keep the enemy at bay. Lastly, It seems almost out of place, this children thing, and a man who has a quiver full of them is pretty awesome and cool and shoots his children at other people. I don't know. It's kind of weird. How do we make sense of this now in light of what? the previous two points were. Well, let's unpack this real quick. According to statistical research, so children are a gift from God. According to statistical research, I looked this up this week, This and and, and it's a reputable source. It's not one of those hokey sources, okay? According to statistical research on birth rates in the United States, you want to take a guess? Over the past 30 years, the birth rate in the United States has been steadily declining, and in 2019, there were 11.4 births per 1,000 of the population. In 1990, this figure stood at 16.7 births per 1,000 of the population. See the average birth rate in the U.S. may be falling, but when broken down along ethnic and economic lines, a different picture is painted. So let's take a look at this. Ha, uh, Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander women saw the biggest birth rate, or excuse me, the highest birth rate in 2019 among all ethnicities, and Asian women saw the lowest birth rate. Uh, additional, the higher the family income, the lower the birth rate. Families making between 15,000 and 24,000 or 25,000 a year uh, had the highest birth rate of any income bracket in the United States. But catch this. While the birth rate may be declining in the US, lives are getting longer. And life expectancy was estimated to be about 78.54 years in 2018, which is great. We're living slightly longer than 75 or 74 years of age. And while this is a positive aspect of today's modern medical advances, countries such as the United States will have a, uh, excuse me, will have to find ways to support and deal with aging populations with fewer working age adults. This is the crisis we're having with Social Security right now. More people are living longer, less people are paying into the structure we call Social Security. Now wait, there's more. According to the World Population Review, the population replacement rate, which is the fertility rate needed to maintain a society's population size, is 2.1 children per woman. Countries with fertility rates below this number may experience an overall older demographic and a decrease in population size over time. Guess what the United States birth rate is per woman? 1.7, so what that means is, The United States is no longer to maintain its average population size. Just to maintain and not increase population, you have to have 2.1 people born to one woman. We're at 1.7, which means we have a declining population. Okay, You, you track it with me. What's gonna happen when you play that scenario out over a generation or two? People living longer, people giving birth less, population decline, the structures and the lifestyle and the way we live will not be the same. It will have to change. Things will decline in addition to people's birth rates decline. We, you remember back in the 70s and 80s, some of you who were around then, oh, our population explosion, we're not gonna be able to sustain. And, and so... Now, globally, it's not just the United States. If you look at statistics globally, there are very few, when I say very few, just a handful of countries that are above that sustaining population. They're producing children at a rate to sustain or grow their population. But across the globe, that's not the case. So the world population is declining. What does that mean? The, what is it? Brandon, why are you telling me this? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis... What was one of God's commands to the first man and the first woman? Be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Take care of it, tend it, steward it well for my sake. For a while we did that. And now, for whatever reason and purposes, we've believed that the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, that we should do it our way. We need to be the ones in control of what happens to the next generation. Well, what about we surrender our control to God's control and follow his mandates and commands again? It seems like things go better when we are fully submitted to God's teachings, commands, and purposes for society, for the family, for government. What does the enemy do? He likes to do things behind the scenes, in private, and in secrecy. Don't tell your parents what you're learning here at school. But what God does, he does it on full display before everyone. There is no secrecy in the kingdom of heaven. All things are laid out. Because when all things are laid out, you can see the truth. But places that hide the truth Or at least do dark things in secret are up to no good. And what about this children thing? Do I dare get into this? There are something these are somewhat startling statistics, right? Because they show a trend in the decline, not only the population, but also of the family. This phenomenon isn't just occurring in the United States. Like I said, it's a global trend with so many couples deciding not to have children, with abortion rates globally off the charts by hundreds of millions globally. Each successive generation is declining in number. This is not a good thing. There was a time when there was a population explosion, scare, but we are not in that time anymore. Biblical scholar George Livingston writes, The forming of a happy family life is even more difficult than fashioning a building. Children are not ultimately man's creation. They are a heritage of God. The psalmist preferred to call children a reward from God. In a dangerous age, a large number of sons who could help the family who could help defend the family and its possessions was of prime importance. Their value as warriors is made clear by the metaphor arrows in the quiver, which were the most potent, offensive, and defensive weapons of the day. The arrows, the bow and arrow, that's why he uses it in this passage. A Hebrew man with a large family could face, a, could face life with confidence. The children would provide for their parents when they became old and would be a strong support while bargaining with unfriendly traders at the city gate where all business matters were addressed. We don't have that kind of society, or at least it's dying. Matthew Henry reminds us, "'Children are a heritage and a reward, and are so to be counted blessings, not burdens.'" For he that sends mouths to feed will also send the food if we trust him. Not all people value life on earth, though. Nor of the unborn life in the womb. No, no, we don't value life as, as a people across the globe. That life is so precious and sacred. It's created in the very image of God, is so often tossed aside or taken for granted. There are countless times in the story of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament where they not only rejected God and thus rejected the sanctity of human life, they rejected life at all. There was an abomination, this this kind of ideology was an abomination to God. Listen in Ezekiel, this is just one passage of many throughout the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God in chapter 16 says, then you took your sons and daughters, the children you had born to me, and you sacrificed them to your gods. Was your prostitution not enough? He's not talking about literal prostitution. He's saying, you used to be faithful to me. I was your God but now you're worshiping these so-called gods that don't even exist, and you're giving your children to them. What's wrong with you, he says. Must you also slaughter my children by sacrificing them to idols? Do you think he's maybe saying the same thing today? I know this isn't politically correct, especially in light of what may be coming down the pike tomorrow with Roe versus Wade. But Ken, I, I was just listening online to a woman, and I don't know if you heard this news clip, but she was being interviewed by a, a street journalist who asked her, Is there any time in the pregnancy that it's okay to have an abortion? She said, It's up to the mother. Even at the point of birth, up to the mother. It's a mother's choice. How about after birth? It's up to the mother. How about two years old? It's up to the mother. What about any time in that child's life? It's up to the mom. So you could be a 50-year-old child of a woman, and it should be justifiable to kill you? Where is our value to life anymore? You say, well, that's an anomaly. They just took a quack off the street. I guarantee you there are more than just one quack on the street. When you do not take these things seriously, you are doomed to become that which you do not take seriously. When you do not look to God as the author and protector of all life, then where do you look? What is the measuring rod you hold every good thing or bad thing up to? I contend that God's word is the only true measuring rod. And the living word, Jesus, who was made flesh and dwelt among us, They are the only measuring rods to measure anything else by as to being right or wrong. One final thought before we move on. Alec Motyer concedes that verse 1 and 2 of this psalm seem to suggest, leave it all to God, let go and let God, and enjoy a restful life. But in the Bible, the opposite of rest is not work. The opposite of rest is restlessness. And in verses three through five, they add this corrective. The Lord has ordained the human activities of begetting, conceiving, and bearing. And yet the Bible insists that it is not human, but divine agency that opens the womb, or indeed closes it. Children are not our achievement, but His gift to us. How have you treated the gift you've been given? Children are not our achievement, but God's gift. So it is a completed house and a guarded city that are God's gifts for a civil society and a stable home. All life must be lived to the full and its joys enjoyed and its duties performed in unworried reliance on God, who is the doer of of all good things joyful activity toilsome activity full of untroubled rest there's an old story of how one man challenged another um, to an all-day wood chopping contest i think i've used this illustration before but it bears repeating the challenger worked very hard chop, stopping only for a brief lunch break but the other man he had a leisurely lunch took several breaks during the day and at the end of the day the challenger was surprised but annoyed to find that the other guy had chopped substantially more wood than he had, and yet he took more breaks, he rested more. I don't get it, he said. Every time I checked, you were taking a rest, and yet you chopped more wood than I did. But you didn't notice, said the winning woodsman. I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest. What are you doing when you sit down to rest? You go to sleep. If we look at the life dedicated to God, fully trusting in him for the outcome of circumstances, we become more at peace with life and what life throws at us. When we take the time to allow God to sharpen us through blessing and rest, we are able to accomplish more than we ever could in our own strength or power. And when we take the time to follow God's lead in building a life, a family, or a healthy society, we have less to worry about, and we have less to worry about what tomorrow will bring, and are able to fully live in the present. As our worship team comes forward today, let me ask you this, are you able to fully live in the present without worries and fears? And the question that would be a follow-up would be, if not, why not? What are you worrying or fearing? Because if you are truly aligned and properly surrendered to God as Lord and Savior of your life, every area of your life is completely surrendered to him. You have nothing to worry. Jesus even says, why worry about the one who could take your body and kill you? You should have a fear of the one who has your body and your soul and can cast them into hell. He's talking about himself. What, what, are you, what are your biggest worries? What are your biggest concerns? Do you see the newspaper or, or do you listen to podcasts or the news or do you watch it on TV and you just find the sinking pit of a feeling in your stomach? Maybe you're concerned about your future. Maybe you're concerned about your children, your grandchildren's future. The only hope this world has is Jesus Christ. And as hope bearers of this world, we need to be shining a light into dark places, not militantly and not with violence, but rather speaking the truth of God in love. Standing for what's right, being uncompromised, but being the hands and the feet of God, embracing those who are far from God. Not accepting their sin, but accepting them as image bearers of the one holy true God. And then loving them to a place of wholeness and surrender and not leaving them where they are. But you can't lead somebody where they don't want to go. And so it's important that you go where God leads. And sometimes He may lead you away from a group of people. And sometimes He may lead you toward a group of people that you never imagined. This is why Jesus says, You are to be light and salt. You are to be these purifying agents of light. Light, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? But it also illuminates what's in the dark. Salt is a disinfectant. It purifies things. But it also brings flavor. What are you? Where are you? Maybe this isn't your story. Maybe the house you tried to build on your own strength... It's fallen apart. And maybe it's not your fault. You're a victim of circumstances. Are you bitter and angry? Are you surrendered to God no matter what? Have you taken ownership for ways that maybe you've messed things up along the way? And if you repented of those things and said, Lord, please forgive me, and you've tried to be reconciled to others, you've harmed along the way, too. See, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers build in vain. Unless the guard protect or unless God protects the city, doesn't matter what watchman you have on the wall, they can never keep the enemy at bay. Do you, do you see the central theme of this? God is the subject. This nation's not going to change. Your home's not going to change. Nothing will change unless things are in their proper place. And what must first be in its proper place is your relationship to Jesus Christ in full surrender to his will and his ways and his purposes. You want to change the society? Change yourself first. The church has to be the living, breathing body of Christ. And it cannot be that unless it's surrendered to his purposes. Our altars are always open to my right, your left. You can come pray and somebody will pray with you. Come to my left, your right, and have it out with God in whatever way you need to. Those of you at home can kneel by your couch, your bedside. Those of you driving, pull over. Just pray in the driver's seat of your car if you have to. Lord, I made a mess of things. I've not always done it right, but I know that if I'm in you and you are in me, it's going to be okay. We can can make something of this together. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would pour down upon this place, but not just this place, these people. I pray that you would convict of sin. I pray that you would drive out the enemy lurking in the dark corners and recesses of people's minds, hearts, lives. I pray for a complete and utter deliverance and surrender of those here in this place and within an earshot of my voice. That, Lord, you would set captives free like you did through the bondage of Egypt in the Exodus with Moses. That, Lord, through Jesus Christ and the blood shed on the cross, In our acceptance of that sacrifice and offering, that we would get out of our own Egypts as we follow you. Forgive us where we faltered and fallen along the way. We repent of the sin in our lives, Heavenly Father, as the body of Christ in North Maine, in Butler, Pennsylvania. And Lord, we look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. Forgive us again where we've fallen but direct our steps and our path. Let us hide your words in our heart that we might not sin against you ever again. But if we do, God, remind us of the grace that is greater than all our sin. Father, we love you. And because we love you, we surrender all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.